Pod here. Welcome to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If this is your first time joining us, you're very welcome. I am an author, lecturer, and leadership advisor to executive teams, C-suite leaders, and multinational organizations all over the world. I've been fascinated with the ideas and practices that underpin impactful and effective leadership for over 25 years. And this podcast is dedicated to understanding those ideas and putting them into practice. Before we start with today's episode, can I ask you a favor? Can you jump over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating on this podcast? Because that's what drives attention to the podcast for people who don't know we exist. So please share this podcast, please write a review, please leave a rating, and on we go. Well, this is a first for me. It's the first time I've been joined on this podcast with someone with the same name as myself, and indeed from the same country, but also someone who is a poet, a theologian, a podcaster of note, and indeed a global expert in conflict. Today I'm joined by Podrick Otuma. As a poet and a theologian, Podrick's work centers around themes of language, of power, of conflict, and indeed religion. He's a compelling poet, speaker, teacher, and group worker. He's probably best known to the global audience for his podcast, which was launched in 2019, called Poetry Unbound with the On Being Studios. Now, to give you a sense, someone who has 10,000 downloads of a podcast is considered to be in the top 5% of podcasters. His podcast has just passed 4 million downloads in under two years. It's one of my favorites and one I've recommended to many people. It's called Poetry Unbound. As a speaker, when BBC journalist William Crawley introduced Podrick at the TEDx conference, Crawley said, Podrick is probably one of the best public speakers I know. And as a leader, one of the reasons why I approached Podrick come onto this podcast, he was a leader between 2014 and 2019 of the Coromila community, which is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation communities. Based in Northern Ireland, it was founded in 1965. The community has won peace prizes, has been visited by luminaries such as Dalai Lama, and today is visited by groups from all over the globe looking to learn ways of working with conflict and exploring options that are not just aggression related. In this conversation, we explore many topics, including historical conflicts and indeed a profound moment, including the Queen Elizabeth speaking in Irish or Gaelic, if you want to use that word, in Dublin. We explore conflict and how leadership teams often lead in such ways as to do the exact opposite of what they aspire and articulate they are going to do. And we look at what happens when we unknowingly stay committed to conflict in our work or in our personal relationships. This is a very different conversation to what I normally have on this podcast. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hit it! I have a dream. That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. We shall never surrender. We wouldn't be doing our work if we weren't fighting with each other. That's the whole point. The question is, is what is the quality of fighting? Does it take recourse to threat? Or have we been able to find a way within which we're enacting something like creativity? I don't mean sitting around drawing a flower. I mean coming up with something that would previously have been unthinkable and coming up with a new collaboration that moves us forward than what we thought would have been possible. That is changing the plot line, and that's exciting, but it always requires courage and vulnerability. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome, Padraig, to the episode of The Leadership Diet. Great to have you here. Thanks very much, Padraig. It's nice to be with you. Padraig Ella, 
Indeed, Padre Yella. As I said in my introduction, not only are you my first Irish person on this podcast, you're the first person with the same name as me, and you're the <laughs> first person who is a poet and a theologian. So lots of firsts on this episode, but I was so looking forward to catching up with you. I think it's been over a year since we met last when you were in Melbourne in early yeah. 2020, long before COVID kicked in and our world changed. Well, actually, I came home from that trip because of COVID. Yeah. So Ireland obviously had gone into lockdown way before Australia. So yeah, I had to cut that trip three weeks short. Indeed. Well, the world has changed a lot. And, and as we're recording this, Sydney is going into lockdown today. So I, I heard that on the news this morning. Yeah. yeah we're, we're, we're still in this, the whole world, aren't we? Yeah. Look, I was really interested in talking to you on a number of levels. You know, one is your, your huge background in conflict and, and helping people through conflict. And then you also your huge background and interest in narrative and storytelling. And on this podcast, we've had many conversations about stories of origin and how they shape us as people and how they shape us as leaders. So I want to do a deep dive into those in a few minutes. But first, can I start with a quote that's on your website? And I'm going to try and say it in the way I imagine it was first said. And then you can tell us if that's true or not. And it goes something like this. You're publishing a book of poetry. That's nice, I suppose. Did you hear the woman down the road died? It was a lovely funeral packed out. My mother. My famous mother. Your famous mother. Now, there's a whole stories around Irish mammy, and we let's, let's not go down that route because we could be here for hours. But I was really attracted to it from a few different senses. One is the beautiful sense of nudging and dismissing the loved ones closest to us onto something else. Is that what she meant by it, do you think? Um, no, I think my mother just was telling me what had happened for her. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what it's like for her. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think there was any message for it. It was just kind of going, well, you shared your news. Here's mine. <laughs> and I don't think there was either a desire to drag me down to earth. And I think, I hope I'm relatively down to earth anyway. But I don't think there was a desire to drag me down to earth. But nor was there a desire to, to say anything with purpose. I've kind of hit, put that on the website as a little gem and also as a little test in the hope that people who might be doing stuff about reviews or whatever would read it and include it because so often those endorsement sections of websites are, you know, oh, you're amazing or you're this and, you know, anybody <laughs> involved in literature does need to have some endorsements up there that folks are going to pay attention to. But I put that one up there. Well, it certainly grabbed my eyes. And I was wondering when I was reading it the other day, how easy it is for all of us to get consumed by what we're doing, particularly at the moment, how useful it is to have someone else going, yeah, that's nice. And here's what else is going on. And here's what's happening here. I was giving a talk in England once and a fellow came up to me afterwards and said, you have the loveliest voice to fall asleep to. <laughs> I love that. Oh, it's those kinds of um, comments that I always remember. <laughs> it's a, so many, there's so many to that levels of, of that comment, I'm sure. Podrick, you have a very strong relationship with Northern Ireland and the historical conflict there. Indeed, we'll come to Coramila soon and your leadership role and, and all of that. But can we talk about shaking hands? Shaking hands is one of your poems. Prince Charles referred to it in one of his speeches as the imperative of leadership in reaching out, which is a really extraordinary comment. Podrick McGuinness, I'm sorry, rather Martin McGuinness, the first minister of Northern Ireland, you know, he talks about your ability as a poet to be honest, empathic and compassionate, but more importantly, taking responsibility for making the world a fairer place. Really two powerful quotes. Can you tell us about the poem and, and, and its origins and, and why it has resonated so much for so many people? So Shaking Hands was written on the day when Martin McGuinness, who was the Deputy First Minister of the Northern Ireland Assembly at that stage, um, before he died, um, when he shook the hand of the Queen. 
I will never talk about this region that I'm in, well, never deliberately, unless I'm referring to a title like Northern Ireland Assembly. I never call it Northern Ireland. I'm really clear in having an anti-colonialist point of view when it comes to the question of Irish sovereignty. Britain partitioned Ireland 100 years ago. And so I, I don't talk about conflict in Northern Ireland because that is to excuse Britain from its 600 year involvement in, in making decisions about everyday affairs in Ireland. And I am committed to reconciliation with British people, of course, my God, but I am also committed to truth telling. And so there is a British Irish conflict that is particularly alive, the north of Ireland, but in many parts of Ireland too. I'm living right on the border at the moment. And so the idea that the border is the level at which British involvement in Ireland, Ireland finishes is not true. So when the Queen came to Ireland and, uh, you know, for a royal visit, Sinn Féin had boycotted that engagement. Mm -hmm. And then a year later, there was an indication given to the Queen that Martin McGuinness was interested in meeting her. I think Shane, Sinn Féin had recognised that there was a mood in Ireland for a greater movement towards a, a new chapter in the relations of Britishness and Irishness. That was at the beginning of what's called the Decade of Centenaries, where there was the centenary of this thing, the signing of the Ulster Covenant, which is where some people signed a covenant in their own blood, saying that Ireland would always be British. Then there was the centenary of the Easter uprising. There was this, there's the centenary of partition just a couple of months ago. And um, it's complicated years as centenary recognitions between Britishness and Irishness. And one of the extraordinary things about the British royal family and about Irish senior civic leadership too was that they also enacted a decade of gestures of gestures of goodwill of, of civic and cultural exchanges and visits. Those were very, very moving. At, at a civic reception, the Queen had stood up. Civic reception in Dublin, the first visit of a monarch to Ireland, the Queen had stood up and started her speech in Irish, which was overwhelmingly moving to, to listen to. I had been so moved by what proper gesture in leadership can look like. And I don't think gesture is in any way the final word, but it's not a bad first word. It does indicate a certain sense to go, we're trying to do something that sets us off to a better start than what we've had before. Anyway, so this had all been happening. Sinn Féin had boycotted it. And a year later, they had indicated that Martin McGuinness, the leader of Sinn Féin in the North, Deputy First Minister, um, and also a former commander in the IRA, was willing to shake the hand of the Queen. And that she too was willing to shake his hand. Each saw the other as representative of oppression. Her favourite cousin had been murdered by the IRA. He too had been bereaved. So each would have, you know, centuries long lists of things, which are not equal. Of course, somebody representing a monarchical force is not without an enormous amount of blood on their hands for going back centuries, especially when it comes to involvement in Ireland. Anyway, the Cooperation Ireland were a peacemaking organisation. They are a peacemaking organisation. And they invited a bunch of artists to be present at this event, mostly, I think, because they thought artists might be rowdy, but relatively easily easy to control. So I wrote this poem about watching the handshake between these two people. I have so many questions around that, but maybe we could segue to the poem and then see what questions emerge between us afterwards. I'll say the poem. There's a little bit in Irish as the second line. It's just the date the way, where this handshake took place, which was the 27th of June in 2012. Shaking hands. Because what's the alternative? Because of courage. Because of loved ones lost. Because it's a small thing, shaking hands. It happens every day. 
because I heard of one man whose hands haven't stopped shaking since a market day in Oma. Because it takes a second to say hate. Because shared space without human touching doesn't amount to much. Because it's tough. Because it has taken so, so long. Because it has taken land and money and languages and barrels and barrels of blood. Because lives have been lost. Because lives have been taken. Because to be bereaved is to be troubled by grief. Because more than two troubled peoples live here. Because I know a woman whose hand hasn't been shaken since she was a man. Because shaking a hand is only a part of the start. Because I know a woman whose touch calmed a man whose heart was breaking. Because privilege is not to be taken lightly. Because this just might be good. Because who said this would be easy? Because some people love what you stand for. And for some, if you can, they can. Because solidarity means a common hand. Because a hand is only a hand. So hang on to it. So join your much-discussed hands. We need this for one small second. So touch. So lead. Thank you. Thank you very much. As I said, the first poet on this podcast and therefore the first poem on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Podrick. The idea of gesture, and it may not be the end, but certainly could start. I'm really intrigued by that because what you're, what you're capturing in this beautiful poem is the start of reconciliation, the start of a conversation, the start of something that's not easy, but hopefully it's worthwhile. What's your thought about leadership? from gestures versus symbols. There's, there's a lot of cynicism around leaders doing something that might be symbolic for the sake of it, as opposed to genuinely trying to do something that's a, a true gesture. You know, it, it, it's the same with everything. There's a question as to whether there's integrity in it. Is there integrity in a policy? Is there integrity in a gesture? Is there integrity in a public speech? If there's not, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's going to fall flat. And so for me, the question isn't whether symbol is enough. Of course it's not. But neither is policy. What we need is a way within which there is always going to be the practice of some kind of integrity and the practice of some kind of pushing yourself toward an edge that people will be surprised that you went there. In the context of British visits to Ireland, when the Queen came to Ireland and stood up to make a speech, the first thing in my mind was, is she going to speak in the language that her government, that her crown made illegal? Is she going to do that? And that's what she did. She started off by saying, which is a traditional greeting meaning presidents and friends. And the president of Ireland at the time, Mary McAleese, was heard on camera, an audio going, wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember extraordinary. The yeah. And that shows that a gesture is not empty. Gesture can be filled with all kinds of things. Here's the thing is that Brexit happened a few years later. So I don't think that that made the Queen's gesture of speaking in Irish empty. But it does also show us that gesture is never enough. But I am aware that nothing, no one thing is ever going to be enough. There needs to be integrity in the way things are carried forward. 
I'm a bit bored when people want to just single out only symbol to say, oh, it can be hollow. My God, everything can. Mm-hmm. You know, the question is, is don't be hollow rather than what do you think is hollow? Everything can be hollow. What was the impact you think of, of not just that opening sentence and few words by the Queen, but then the, the later, the, the actual handshake, the actual genuine intention of the handshake? What was the impact of that? Yeah, it showed here's what's possible when it comes to relations between senior people in British and Irish civic life. And that there was a a recognition that two people were willing to say that they were willing to touch the hand of somebody who would previously have been described as an enemy. And they were willing to, to risk people in their own communities who would question their practice of reaching out to an enemy. And that, I think, demonstrates something to say, there's less need for fear than you thought. There's less need for hostility than you thought. Look at what's possible. And if such a thing is possible, well, then maybe people who have always been estranged from each other could collaborate on policy. Maybe an understanding about educational processes, maybe businesses too, could find ways where they too could say, well, actually, it is no threat to my Irishness, my Britishness to collaborate. And this, I hope, is a demonstration of a way within which a public gesture can be communicative of a a way of being that can trickle down into something much more powerful than gesture. Over the last few months on this podcast, we've spoken to leaders specifically around the Asia-Pacific area, given where we are located here. But many of the comments have come around, COVID has forced us to collaborate across countries or across companies in ways we've never done before because the problem is just too big to solve by ourselves. And indeed, we haven't solved some big problems in the past at all. I think what you're pointing to is if the intention is very genuine, that first step of shaking hands is the conversation starter to how can we find a way to collaborate on a problem that none of us can solve by ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I am always suspicious of intention. (laughs) I I always do want to measure the space between intention and impact. In conflict resolution studies, usually you'll have two people who will have, you know, where something's happened. There might be one particularly egregious party and then they might say, well, I didn't mean it. What might have happened might have meant that somebody lost their income. Somebody was brought close to a brink of impoverishment. It kind of doesn't matter if the person meant it or not. What does matter is what they did. And for me, there's a question in gesture about gesture being tangible rather than I'm standing here meaning nice things. No, do them. Take a damn risk. And that's what's of interest to me in the hope that further risk can be taken in order to bridge the gap between intention and then enacted upon impact. I do think that COVID has meant that things that people would have said that they were ideologically opposed to, remote working, all kinds of cross-platform collaboration, engaging and learning different sector to different sector, all of those things were broken down and the technology was there and it kind of showed, look at what has was present already but was not being make, made use of, platforms for engaging with each other online, etc., ways within which flexible working patterns were possible, finding ways within which colleagues could communicate with each other across vast differences, even just within Australia, never mind outside of the Australia. And I I think one of the things that that shows is that ways within which there would have been resistance to such flexible patterns of work before actually were communicating something else. They were communicating an intention of resistance rather than a pragmatics of, I don't know how to make this happen because it was all there already, easily able to be made happen. I love what you said about intention and impact. As as you know, the work that I do is, is working with leaders on exactly that, helping them to understand what is their intention, but in reality, what is the impact that they're having? 
And, you know, one, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, you, you judge yourself by what you're intending to do, but you judge everybody else by what they actually do. Exactly. How do you find other people's views of what you actually do to help you understand that? So it's, it's a very powerful, but sometimes very humbling lesson when you understand here's the impact I'm actually having. And sometimes it's good, but quite often it's, it's not the way I want it to be. So much of my mediation work has been working with public religious leaders who use intolerable language really about lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people. And regularly somebody who will have said that, you know, gay people are a product of the devil or they're going to hell or they all deserve to die of AIDS or whatever, all kinds of things that are said about us. Um, they will then say, but we love you. And that is a demonstration of the capacity to, to justify hateful impacts by a demonstration of reading your own skewed and fantasized version of intention. And I suppose whenever I'm in a situation where I need to apologize, I, I hear so quickly in me the desire to say, oh, but I meant the following. And I, I try to not let that be the first thing. I try to put myself in a situation to say, whatever I meant, here's what it's caused. Mm -hmm. And let me be accountable for that. And that is never easy. <laughs> you mentioned mediation, Paul. Let's jump to Coromila. It's an extraordinary place and it has uh, had a huge impact on what you do and, and you on it. So it's the oldest peace and reconciliation organization in Ireland, set up in 1965, I think. 40 full-time staff now, won the Peace Prize in 1997, you know, visited by people like the Dalai Lama in 2005. So it obviously has a, an extraordinary reputation and extraordinary impact. Can we start with you know, maybe tell us a little bit about what it does and, and how it does it, and then let's move to, to your role there when, when you were working there. Yeah, so Carmilla is a physical center up on the very north coast of Ireland, and it is um, residential. And over the course of any ordinary year, obviously COVID has changed all that, but over the course of any ordinary year, there's about 10,000 people come through programs that Carmilla runs. Plenty of those are up at the actual centre, but then there are staff who work in schools and with community groups, etc. out in the community. And the idea really is that Carmilla helps support people explore what serious practices of peace look like. And serious practices of peace can, of course, be a way within which people feel reconciled to each other and have a moment where they go, my God, you know, something has changed for me. But not everything gets to that level. And even when you do get to that level, you don't stay there. So we also support people in being able to argue well, in being able to do some explorations of history, in being able to explore some of their own prejudices, practicing the tools really for what civic living in a place that has known so much conflict can look like. I'd say about 75% of the program work does look at the historical British-Irish conflict. But then there's always been a long-standing commitment to, to exploring other differences also. For instance, we have a whole bunch of groups of young adults come across from London or from other cities in England where they might be exploring interracial or interreligious tensions that might be happening in England. And they would come across for experiences of looking at, well, how have you explored this here? Similarly, university groups that might be doing peace studies or civic democracy, etc., in the United States would come for a week or two for a program where they would meet practitioners, meet victims, meet perpetrators, and participate in a project of learning, really, comparative learning. No one practice of kind of trying to eke your way away from violence into something called safety, like in Ireland, will be immediately transferable anywhere else. There is no template that is easily transferable outside of Ireland to somewhere or from somewhere else in, into Ireland. But there are wisdoms that you can observe and notice and then ask, does this work in our context? So any one day... 
can have a group of people on a religious retreat. It can have a bunch of young people up there running around like mad idiots. It can have a bunch of people who are victims to a crime. It can have a group that are up there in relative secrecy because they don't want it to be broadcast that they're trying to make inroads of dialogue with each other. It would be undone if it was tweeted out about too quickly. So there can be all kinds of things happening up at Carmilla at any one time. One time there was a, a six-year-old who had established a border across one of the corridors. So anybody who had to walk by had to cross the border. She was a self-appointed border guard, but it was easy to cross the border. All you had to do was to say your name. And that was easy. So she was a benevolent border guard. That's the kind of border I can cope with. Fair, fair enough. You, you use the word wisdoms and, and philosophies. And I suppose this is what I'm interested in is, is the physical setting, you know, the history there, the location, um, the dialogues you have are, as you said, are quite unique to, to the part of Ireland that is in there. But the wisdoms and philosophies can be applied in many other settings. What are some of those wisdoms that you think are trans-country, trans-human, they, you know, they, they, they just apply in almost any setting and we as humans, particularly we as leaders, should pay attention to them? Well, I, I will say that they are wisdoms, but I'm not sure they can apply in almost any setting. Okay. That is up to people from other settings to know, will they apply there? I, I would never want to say that what has worked for us should necessarily work elsewhere. Some of the things we know is that it is good to meet. And that sounds so ridiculous, ridiculously obvious. It, it might even seem insulting, but it can be difficult to remember that and even more difficult to practice it, that it is good to meet. And that meeting with each other in the context of being somewhere where you're going to be sharing simple enough meals and sharing the everydayness of temporary community is also something that adds. If you only come into a room of mediation where you arrive separately, you walk into a room and then leave, ever having wondered, could you pass me the salt or could you help me with this or look at that lovely view? Well, then there are all kinds of possibilities for human encounter that are missed. And human encounter is one vital part of what civic democracy leaning towards peace can look like. There does need to be ways in which there can be unexpected moments of human encounter that can contribute towards people thinking, I think maybe some co-working will be possible. Human encounter isn't everything just because two people have had a lovely time. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to write a great policy, but great policies that address civic strife are rarely written without something quite transformational happening between the people who are co-writing them if they're coming from opposing points of view. So that I think is at the heart of Corimela is meeting and then creating a structure around what meeting looks like. All of our rooms have big windows looking out to the sea. Corimela has no sacred cows of buildings. Most of the buildings that Corimela have have been knocked down and built up again because, right. you know, they need to be fit for purpose. But it's right on the coast, looking out over where the Atlantic spills into the Irish Sea. You can see Scotland 14 miles away, the Mullican Tyre, Rathlin Island, Isla, Jura. These islands are visible from there. And it is something powerful to be in a place where nature is so present. There is something extraordinary about being somewhere of profound natural power that does invite you to lift your eyes, perhaps from the grey humdrum that can be involved in being in a place, perhaps in a city where you might not be seeing much beauty. There's something about beauty that elevates the heart, we hope, and the eyes and the imagination to think about what's possible. So the, the notion of as simple as it is, taking a walk in nature with the person that you're trying to understand, or at least trying to meet the surroundings of nature, just helps that conversation just to take place? It can do. Yeah. I mean, I am so, I'm so aware at how naive all of this sounds. And I can imagine people thinking, look, I deal at hard business. But the thing about it is, is that we've had people who have murdered 
other people, being in the same room as the surviving family members of those murders, being in rooms where we say it is possible to talk with each other. And it's not like we say, oh, take a walk in nature and nature will solve it. It's just that it's there as a piece of salt in the air. And by having conversations where we say, we believe that it's possible for you to talk with each other. And we know that it is exhausting and we'll have plenty of breaks. And when we have a break, make sure to get some fresh air. It's as simple as that. We're not there to kind of dictate the facilitation model of nature engagement. Nature does its own work, but there is a presence of place that is there. And in a place, well, I suppose everywhere in Ireland, um, the engagement with place is so important and the language associated with place also. That is so vital. If you put people into a room to have a difficult conversation and the room is poorly arranged and it's noisy and it's cold, those factors are going to influence the mediation. Anybody training in any conflict mediation will have been told where possible, if you are going to be holding a room of dialogue, that especially a difficult dialogue, go in there a little bit in advance and have thought about how can the chairs be laid out? Mm-hmm. How can when the parties who've been injured in a conflict, when they arrive in, can they feel like, oh God, that's very kind. You, you arrange the room to make it safe. Initially, if I'm doing a, a mediation, I will arrange the chairs to be looking at me rather than two people sitting in chairs facing each other, mm-hmm. you know, where you're kind of setting up a boxing match. But then as meetings go on, you might change the arrangement of the room a little bit so that there is a more clear engagement with each other where they are in each other's eye. So there's all kinds of ways within which the context of place can deeply influence the way within which you um, engage with each other. And for us, we, we understand that some of the most difficult conversations are needed to be had. And the resolution to those conversations is not people hugging and kissing each other or not people saying, oh, my God, we believe the same thing and would vote on the same way now. It's people able to have a really serious argument without recourse to threat. Yep. That is what peace looks like. And that is success. And what we want is to have the capacity to be able to contain that. Hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Please pause and just take a chance to go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review for this episode. Very much appreciate you doing so. I love the distinction you've just made. They can have a really serious argument without the recourse to threat. And threat, of course, can happen in many, many different ways. And in my experience of working with leadership teams, you know, the three points you just laid out there, good to meet the the notion of meetings and, and nature, and then the, the notion of dialogue and setting the space up to support that. Anytime I've been involved in a team that has worked through difficult or previously believed unsurmountable issues, those three factors that you've just laid out there, Padre, have all played a huge part in it. And I, I, I really believe that putting people into a room, letting them cook together or eat together or, or, or walk in between major conversations or, you know, break up the group into couples and go for a walk together and then come back into the wider group. Those kind of notions have a powerful impact on, on better conversations. They totally do. And hopefully in a surprising way, one of the powerful factors in any room of dialogue is going to be this profound question coming back to what we spoke about earlier on in terms of intention, which is, what do you want? For some parties to a conflict, the biggest crisis that is present, they might not be able to articulate it, but the biggest crisis that's present is what will happen if we find peace? Because then there's a question of what will I do afterwards? Will my own people consider me a traitor? Am I much more used to the idea of maintaining a conflict than I am to the possibility of a conflict getting to the stage where it's somewhat resolved? I'm sure people who engage with your podcast will know 
situations where you've got colleagues who actually are really similar to each other, but they are profoundly committed to fighting. And I don't mean fighting in a way that's creative and enlivening. I mean, in a way that's just boring and energy sapping and it wrecks the heads of the HR people and it wrecks the heads of the colleagues. And that is so interesting to me. The longer I've practiced conflict resolution, the more aware I am about how powerful in the room the intention and the desire of the individuals in the room are. And so I will these days name it to say, what would happen if this got resolved? You know, what would you do? What have you been putting off? How are you benefiting from this conflict not being resolved? What is happening that you are privately considering to be a positive while the public negative of this extended conflict is being performed? Because I'm curious about how interested people are in changing the plot. Because conflict is a phenomenally predictable plot because it always veers toward dominance, whether that's dominance of murder, dominance of wanting somebody fired, dominance of wanting somebody humiliated, dominance of wanting somebody demoted while you get promoted, etc. It's a very, very boring plot line. And I am really interested in thinking, are you seriously interested in changing the plot line? Or is this too just a performance in order for you to say the thing you've been storing up to say? That little tour de force at the end where you go, aha, but listen to this. That's right. And I am bored with that. And I name boredom within the context of it. What happens in those conversations when you, you know, basically challenge the intention and try to surface the real intention? Uh, it depends on the group. It depends on the mediator's relationship with the group. I mean, I wouldn't be saying this is the first thing going into a room of conflict mediation. <laughs> yes, I <would>. indeed. <laughs> It'll be a short conversation. <laughs> yeah, I know. It just depends on the group. Maybe I just said it privately to people individually, because to face your own resistance to the thing you say you want, that is, that is a really painful thing to do. It hurts. I need to know that I'm part of the same equation. I'm not standing outside it, diagnosing it. I'm standing within it saying, this is one of the complexities of being human and the complexities of being human influence the workplace. And that has been really important. Folks might think that it's to name that is to be shaming people for hypocrisy. And I don't think that's the case. I am really influenced by Wilfred Bion, who's the, I suppose you'd call him the founder of what's called modern group psychoanalysis. And I think he was an awful bastard of a man. So I'm glad he's dead. But he wrote a very good book called Experiences in Groups, where he was basically trying to figure out what happens in groups. <laughs> That's really what he was trying to figure out, what happens in groups. And one of the things that he highlighted is that a group will usually manifest the opposite of the thing it says it's there for. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, a, a peace group will have all kinds of underlying conflict. A communication group will have all kinds of underlying barriers to communication. A harmony group will have disharmonious relations. And it's easy for people to think about that and then go, oh, look, for God's sake, therefore we're a bunch of hypocrites. And that's not the case. I think one of the things it's saying is that in your intuition, you are manifesting fear about the very thing you say you're here to conquer. And let's talk about that. It's actually a sign of profound engagement to be manifesting the opposite of the thing that you are saying you're about. The question is, is what's your quality of being able to name that going to be? Or will you fall into a trap of saying, this has been happening and it's all that wanker's fault. So mm. let's fire him or let's ostracize her or let's find a way to humiliate them in public, whatever it is, you know, that is a failure of engaging with that. Having a way in a certain sense to say, look, I know we're all here for the purposes of communication in our business and we have some miscommunications among us and somebody in leadership to make the gesture of saying, and I contribute to that. I'm trying not. But actually, even though I'm trying not to, I do. 
And it's okay for you too to highlight that and to to model in public what it means to talk about the things where rather than demonizing the thing that is the detriment of you, you find a way to communicate about it. And then something powerful can happen. And that's unexpected. And it's a crisis too to do it because some people are so linked into a pattern of blame and shame that it, seeing something that is a certain kind of muscular vulnerability in public, that can seem like, my God, I'm not capable of that at all. So let me ostracize that person now who's demonstrating that kind of leadership. And that is, I think, one of the calls of leadership is to be able to say the things that people are all talking about when you're not there, but for you to be able to say it, not in a way where you're practicing shame, but to be able to say it in a way where you're saying, yeah, we can cope with this. I think what you just dipped into there, Bart, is is quite profound. And probably a lot more common than people admit to. Oh, it's everywhere. Yeah. I mean, when people hear that, you know, our Carmilla board meters, meetings often had profound tension and they're like, oh my God, yeah, irony. You're like, no, it's expected. Of mm-hmm. course it is. We wouldn't be doing our work if we weren't fighting with each other. That's the whole point. The question is, is what is the quality of fighting? Does it take recourse to threat? Or have we been able to find a way within which we're enacting something like creativity? I don't mean sitting around drawing a flower. I mean coming up with something that would previously have been unthinkable and coming up with a new collaboration that moves us forward than what we thought would have been possible. That is changing the plot line and that's exciting, but it always requires courage and vulnerability. I, th- I think what you've just said, Padraig, is something really profound and, and I'm interested in, in thinking about it from the leader or the leader's perspective. Like how many times have I heard or have you heard a group of leaders individually or in couples say, you know, we on this team do everything but lead together. And that's our role. And, and they, they're voicing frustration, but it stops there. Well, the shape of that is going to look different for every group. There it does need to be a certain space making in order to be able to have a conversation that is expansive. Trying to do that when you're right up against a deadline is probably not going to be the most creative use of anybody's time. Industries where you are facing a deadline every half hour then will have a particular set of problems. And so it might be a matter of trying to plan something I have seen some teams who are at crisis point where they're saying, look, we need six weeks off in order to be able to face this. I just think if they had six weeks off with no deadlines, they'd be bored and half killing each other by the end of it. One group that was saying they needed six weeks off to me, I said, well, how about you take, you know, six Thursdays and, you know, just see what at the end of six Thursdays, what things have been like, whether that's helped, you know, rather than saying, let's plunge you into the chaos of all this time with no work to do, because work mm-hmm. is really helpful mm-hmm. to do. And collaborating together can show you, oh, check out, oh, check what we're able to do. So it is a matter of finding the right shape within the context of the industry for thinking what can creative space be, not too little, but also not too much. Mm-hmm. And having a plan to be able to say, here's what we're going to do. And having a way within which there's courageous leadership. The word courage comes from the the Latin core, meaning heart. And I think that's really worthwhile remembering that heart is part of the question of courage. In sign languages in Ireland and France and the United States, I'm not sure, in Britain as well, I'm not sure about Australia. The, the sign for fear is usually either taking both sets of five fingers or one and kind of palpitating it against your chest, kind of embodying the, the feeling of panic, you know, so... Mm-hmm. And in all of those sign languages that I mentioned, that's also the opening sign for courage. But you take that and then you move it into a fist. In American Sign Language, you move it into the the shape for S, the letter S, as the opening letter of strength. There is no possibility of courageous leadership without being a bit frightened. And I think if you're called a leader, well, then the clue is in the title. You're supposed to lead in the practice of facing some fear in the group. And 
the risk of that is going to look different. But I have met some leaders who are fundamentally opposed to ever seeing anything curious or exploratory in the context of leadership with the group of people that they're in. And in that context, I've heard people use the most profoundly infantilizing terms about my people, you know, the bunnies, whatever way they use to derogatize the individuals who are collaborating with them on a team. And I partly in situations like that just feel like, well, so just let's, let's give up. <laughs> I can't force anybody into courage and vulnerability and that kind of creative leadership. But if you're not willing to do it, sure, get out. There's no point. Yes. But I don't say that. Because <laughs> I suppose the hope is, is that with a bit of charm, they might be able to discover, oh, actually, I am able to do something. You know, so let's talk about the thing that you're committed to not doing. Why? Japanese company Toyota have a practice that if something goes wrong on the assembly line, there's the practice of the five whys, understanding that anything that happens in the assembly line is always really a manifestation of a systemic problem. So rather than thinking, look, that person keeps on making this mistake, let's fire them. They say, well, let's ask why five times in order to understand what is it centrally that's contributing to this performance and this manifestation. And that is never easy. And I admire so much that practice of being able to recognize that it is not as easy as thinking who should we fire and who should we rehire, etc. That this is solved in understanding we've created an organism in a system of people that are working with each other for the reward of their payment. And maybe, maybe some kind of sense of the reward of pride for their work. And that comes and goes, of course, we all know that. And understanding that that organism has a life of its own and is doing interesting things with the people there. And sometimes the person who was actually the biggest pain in the ass might have access to information rather than just be there waiting to be fired. Mm -hmm. And that is always going to take courage. It is always going to be a pain. And it is always going to take some level of risk and some level of curiosity and some level of not being entirely sure you were able to control the plot. Um, but that, I think, is the task of leadership if you are really engaged and working together. Can I move us to a, a different topic and the topic of storytelling and language and storytelling and narratives and storytelling? I know this is a whole area that you're fascinated with and you've done many talks and lectures in this space. And there was a, was a sentence that I caught from somewhere that you were talking, where you talk about it. You said it's in the shelter of each other that people live, and indeed it's in the shadow of each other that people live. And understanding those, and understanding how they, how they shape us is, is really important. In one of the videos I watched of you recently, you, you're, you're retelling a story of one of your former students from a primary school, a young girl called Ashling, talking about her knowledge and her view of the soccer players, but your recognition of how her city of Belfast was shaping her through the stories it was telling each other. Can you just tell us a bit more of that? Yeah, I was a school chaplain for a year. One of my favorite jobs in my life, I think. And there was a bunch of young people in the chaplaincy and one of them, Ashling, said to me, she was brilliant. I hope she grows up to be an, a, a lawyer because she had such a capacity for communication. And she says, Podrick, I have a question for you. And I said, grand work away. She regularly enough said that she was just so filled with her own sense of herself. I loved it when she came into the chaplaincy. And then she goes, um, God made us all right. And you know, I've studied theology, but you know, I, I'm really uh, an agnostic at the heart of things, you know, in the sense of that I'm enamored with the reality of mystery and the unknowability of things. Anyway, but I knew she was just setting a premise. So I said, Grant, okay, we're in the chaplaincy. I'll, I'll give an answer to that. And she said, and God, you know, God loves us and God made us. So fine. Okay. I knew that she was getting to the real point. And then she goes, answer me this. Why did God make Protestants? 
And she was 11, 12, maybe. She was nearing the end of primary school. And like, she's asking this in Belfast. So to be easy to think, well, look, you're just clearly, you know, four foot 11 size sectarian. But all she is doing is reflecting an education in a wider city experience that she has. You know, she's grown up in a city that has a long shadow of this. And she was probably born after the Good Friday Agreement. But the peace agreement is only the start of something, not the arrival at something. And, you know, conflict is always going to take as long to de-escalate as it took to escalate. So we're facing into hundreds of years of Ireland trying to figure out how in, please God, an increasing peace with Britain, we're able to live peacefully with Britain. So that she's asking this so early in the peace process, you know, only 12 years after the signing of this made total sense. Mm -hmm. So I said to her, you know, I knew she liked soccer. She was a brilliant soccer player. And I said to her, I know loads of Protestant soccer players that would like, oh, I said, what do, why do you ask it? And she said, they hate us and they hate him. And one of the things that I think is really powerful is that when people are speaking about God, they're usually speaking about earth. When people are speaking about heaven or hell, they're usually speaking about the here and now. And God, in many ways, is a distraction to speaking about power right here, right now. Other ideologies do the same function. What was really clear is that like they hate us and they hate him. How extraordinary she has put herself, uh, her own community and God into the same category of being hated by those Protestants. Mm. So when she's in front of her classmates, none of them were bothered by the question. They probably all agreed with her. Um, so I said to her, I know loads of Protestant people that would want to have you on their football team, you know, if they were choosing their best team because you're such a good player. And she goes, really? Because I wanted to say something that implied in the imagination, actually people would desire your friendship and desire your skill and you'd have something to contribute and they'd have something to contribute back. I, I wanted to say something that was an invitation rather than implying that she somehow needs to have her sectarianism yeah. deconstructed because that's not going to work within the context there. And Ireland had just been beaten by France in the football a couple of nights previously. And the goal that had won the game was almost like one of the Maradona's goals. Do you know, it was a controversial goal. The hands of God, right? Yeah. yeah, the hand of God. I don't think it was quite that explicit, but it wasn't enough that explicit either. Anyway, she says to me then, what about French people? What God made them? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. You know, but she was a young Henotheist. Henotheism is an understanding that you have your own God, but everybody else has their own different gods. You know, and she was there just imagining this pantheon of gods up in the great beyond. You know, here's the French God, here's the Irish God, here's the British God, here's the Catholic God, here's the Protestant God. I loved her imagination. I thought it was magnificent and, and very, very inspiring, really, in a certain sense, and very old. I mean, Hanotheism is an old, old understanding. You know, the Vikings were filled with Hanotheism. And so therefore, I, I kind of didn't want to expose her heresy because I don't think it is heresy. But I, I also didn't want to shame her in public. And I wanted to say something that would inspire the imagination. And that for me is at the heart of so much of conflict is to say, somebody says, I see a binary here that's insurpassable and so insurpassable must have been made by different gods or we must belong to completely different sets of belonging. And for me, the question is, is what can an intervention of surprise do within the context of that? And surprise, once it stages its own intervention, can do all kinds of work. Another similar example, I was part of a two-day retreat, three-day retreat maybe, with some folks who were all fundamentally and very publicly opposed to lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people being given further protections and safety in civic society. And there was a fellow there who asked to be called a religious fundamentalist. For him, this was a term that he said is applicable to him. It was his preferred term. 
So things weren't going well, you know. I was there kind of as facilitator, but very definitely there, you know, as a gay man myself, you know, and as a theologian and as a conflict mediator. The idea was to say, some of these folks were saying, look, yes, we have these strong opinions, but we are interested in meeting a live homosexual. So I was the live homosexual. I was being paid, thank God. (laughs) And... Because honestly, I wouldn't do that stuff if I wasn't being paid. You know, I'm not interested in being somebody's battering ram. Fair so enough. we were there and I was finding it so difficult to think how, especially with this one character, how can we proceed? Anyway, we were making cups of tea one night because we were in a Methodist center. So there wasn't a bottle of beer or whiskey to be found anywhere. So we're making cups of tea one night and your man, the fellow who was whom the tension was highest as we were making tea said to me, I hope you realize the sacrifice I'm making in being here. And I was like, here we go. My God, can't I even make a cup of tea without being confronted? I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, I'm giving up my favorite television program this evening. And I said, all right, what is that? And he said, The View. It's, um, it's a political discussion show. He was very interested in politics, this man. And I said to him, my partner's the producer. And he went, what? And then he named Paul Doran, my partner. Right. And cause he was that kind of a geek because he, he knew the names of everybody who worked on the show you know, because he, he watched it so obsessively and something utterly unexpected happened. He was like, all right. He suddenly wanted to ask me questions about my partner. And up until that point, he, he wouldn't acknowledge the word partner. He wouldn't acknowledge the word love. Somebody in the room had said, can gay people love each other? It was that kind of a room where you're really beginning at point minus 20, not even zero. And suddenly he wanted to ask me all kinds of questions about Paul. What does Paul think? And how does he know it? And what was Paul's training? And just because he was curious, he suddenly had a kind of a a connection in with the inner workings of his favorite program. And it was transformational because it suddenly was a surprise where there was a new imagination of who I was and who I was sleeping with. And suddenly he wasn't projecting his fantasies about what he thought gay sex was, which is all about his own fantasies, it should be said. Suddenly he was thinking, I'm actually not thinking about your sex life at all. I'm not obsessing about what I think you're doing. I want to know what, you know, your partner does in his role of producer. What a surprise. And that was so powerful. And I suppose one of the things we're looking for in conflict resolution is ways within which something unexpected can emerge. Suddenly all kinds of alliances are possible. This didn't mean that suddenly it was all lovely. We hugged each other at the end and it was all nice. He still had work to do and he still had questions, but he approached his questions with a profoundly marked change over the next few days. There's something really amazing about the notion of how do you shift from a place of judgment, specifically, we don't even know you're being judgmental, to a place of curiosity. And I think what you're saying there is that unexpected, allowing something to unexpectedly emerge means you're shifting away from, in his case, a fundamental view to, oh, this person might be really, really interesting. And how do I find out more about that? And then the doorway to other conversations emerge from that. Yeah, anybody who listens to your podcast who has studied mediation will presumably be fed up to the teeth with all the models that are there when you study mediation. God Almighty, you've got to learn off this model and that model. And they're usually named after the one, two, three, four, or 20 people who came up with the model life model. I find them exhausting. There is no such model for human curiosity. I'm glad for it because it's a mystery that goes deeper. You can't facilitate it. Well, maybe you can facilitate it by certain things. And that certainly is the hope, but you can't force it to happen. That's the whole point about surprise is that, you know, forced fun at a staff retreat is always going to cause all kinds of groaning, even if afterwards you've got said, ah, that was better than I thought. But there's some things that happen that have what in Irish we'd call the driacht, the magic that, that seemed to come out of nowhere 
that take everybody's by surprise, the aggressor and the victim, where they are caught up into a moment or something that can be some kind of resetting. And I suppose for me, the question is, is how can you get out of the way? And also imaginatively, how can I begin with the assumption that it's entirely likely that I'm being a wanker? Because it's far too easy to assume that the other person is when I also need to ask questions about my own complicity. That's the Otuma model. You're probably a wanker. <laughs> That's right. Let's patent that tonight straight away before someone else grabs it. The podcast comes out. <laughs> you, you mentioned, Drake, well, product's been magical having you here. You, you've opened the doors to many conversations. And I've, I've no doubt that people will be pondering lots of your ideas uh, on, on this podcast when, when they listen to it. Can I move us maybe to the final questions for today? I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in the word wisdom and I'm not suggesting that you or I or any of our friends are particularly wise, but we certainly have, in your case, lots of experience to pull from. What are you now thinking about or understanding on a different level than, let's say, you used to even a couple of years ago, based on the experience you've been having? I suppose for the best part of 20 years, I had worked in conflict resolution. And I realized in the last five years how, how bored I was of conflict resolution of, you know, setting ground rules at the beginning of evaluating things and all that. It wasn't that I thought that those things were meaningless. I had a boredom that I was resisting acknowledging. And, you know, I, I've written and read poetry obsessively really since I was a child. And I realized how my, my curiosity had moved and how I was no longer satisfied with just working within the plot lines of conflict. You know, we'll do this, we'll do that. You'll come to an agreement, it'll fall apart, you'll have a crisis, you'll come back, you'll do this, you'll do that. And it kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier on, which is about plotline. What are you interested in? Mm -hmm. What are you willing to do? Or are you really, really tacitly enjoying keeping a conflict going that you're pretending to wish to resolve? And for me, that is a movement towards creativity. What does it mean to co-create together? What does it mean to be involved in something where you are truly using the best of yourself? By saying, here, I'm traumatized by this, but I'm trying. Or here, I've got so much power in this. And I am actually realizing how little interest I have in sharing power. And we want to talk about that. Those kinds of conversations are really curious to me because they're opening up the possibility of the creative. And it is recognizing the role of the creative within the context of industry. Because if it is just going to be the same old, same old, there are all kinds of possibilities that are being ignored. And I am... Continuing to be more and more convinced of the necessity of creativity within the context of industry. What's next for you? Speaking of creativity, <laughs> so I work with the American studio On Being, and I present a podcast called Poetry Unbound, which is a short podcast where I take a poem, read it, reflect on it, and read it again. It's kind of fifteen minutes long usually. So we just finished our third season, and when we were planning it, we had an idea that in order for it to be viable as a business project within on being that by season three, we needed to have reached 100,000 downloads. And so we've just finished season three and we have over 4 million and we have been <laughs> moved and shocked and delighted by the public appetite for engaging with a simple process that isn't just designed for poets. In fact, it's deliberately not designed for poets. It's designed for people who have a bit of love for poems, but might feel like, God, I wouldn't know where to start if I was stood in front of a bookshelf of poetry in a bookshop. Um, it's just designed to say, well, here's a few inroads into it. And here's one poem that we're going to look at. Read it once, reflect on it and read it again. And so 
I'm finishing the manuscript of a book of that project that'll be out in a year's time, planning on season four and five and six. I'm going to be doing a poetry residency with the Conflict Resolution Department at Columbia University in New York toward the end of this year, putting together a poetry on bond project where we examine poems that are wise and intelligent about some of the subterranean dynamics of conflict, like rage, like lament, like hope, like love. All of these things contribute to the practice of conflict. So all of those things continue for me. I'm doing a PhD part-time as well, looking at poetry and prayer. I'm very interested in the overlap between those two things. It's a creative PhD from the University of Glasgow. So 65% of it is writing a volume of poetry myself and then writing a kind of a critical engagement with that through the lens of poetry and theology. So you're not bored anymore. <laughs> I am not bored. It is, it, it is so lovely to not be bored. And I should say that it, my, my boredom was not boredom with thinking that the industry was boring. My boredom was recognizing I need to pay attention to the boredom because what used to enliven me doesn't. And I therefore think that something else is asking to come more to the forefront. Conflict resolution, theology and poetry have been the kind of triangle of interests all of my life and will continue to be. And I think what I needed to recognize is I just needed to turn that triangle a little bit so that poetry was at the point of it because that was where I was finding the most energy. I'm so glad you recognize that, sir, because as you know, I've, I have told you in the email exchange that we've had how much I enjoy Poetry Unbound. Of those 4 million downloads, I think I've got 1 million on my phones particularly. <laughs> <laughs> and I have uh, referred that podcast to so many people, particularly a recent one on watching my friends age and all the stories around that. We'll have links in our show notes to not just your own website, but to that particular podcast and, and to your, your books, etc. But it's certainly one of my favorite podcasts because as you said, it's not written for poets, it's written for everybody. And it's a beautiful insight into what's really going on behind those words and all the various meanings of it. Podrick, it's been fabulous having you on this podcast. I know you made time for us in between your writing of your, that 65% of your creative PhD goes into a, a published area. So thank you for making time for us in between a very oh, my busy pleasure. schedule this evening. And we can't wait to have you down under again when you, when oh, all of our yes. world changes back towards whatever normal becomes again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to coming back down under. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If you enjoy that conversation, I've recorded my own reflections and a summary of that in the next episode. It's just a few minutes long and it's lined up straight away so you can download it after this. And I've designed it to spark your memory of the conversation. Occasionally, I suggest some reflections to consider. And I also hint at where you might want to go next if this subject particularly interested you. So to round off this conversation, just click on the next episode and enjoy a few minutes reflection time. After that, head over to leadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, retrieve show notes, including whatever resources, songs or band was mentioned by our guest. And finally, the best way you can support this podcast is by submitting a review on Apple, subscribing on whatever platform you listen to and sharing this podcast with your colleagues and friends so they might gain any insights from our guests.